We're going to spend a few weeks in the Psalms and allow God to give us some some of the most uh, practical, helpful, uh, relevant, just uh, easy to institute in your life wisdom in the Scripture comes from the Psalms. Uh, few months ago I was having a conversation with somebody about uh, how uh, I spent a year uh, reading the Psalms and Proverbs every day and uh, it was one of the most formative uh, years of my life. Um, There just are things said in the Psalms that aren't said anywhere else in that way and the way that it can impact your life and change you. And so I'm looking forward to uh, just allowing some of these different passages that have really been impactful to be impactful to you. Okay, so before I start, uh, all you able-bodied men, we need your help after the service. Please, if you'll go down to the barn. on the far side, go around the back of the barn to the far side where the grass is. We've got to move a bunch of tables and stuff out of the barn so that they can get ready for VBS because, like I said a few weeks ago, uh, we have four gazillion kids coming. So we're going to need every square inch of space that we have down there. So if you could help us, it won't, you know, many hands will make light work if we all go down there and and help so it would be greatly appreciated they'll have trailers already backed up over there and we're going to take the stuff out of there and put it in those trailers all right great okay let's pray and then we'll and we'll study psalm 91 let's pray father we thank you for you we're grateful for you who you are how you've determined to reveal yourself to us the fact that you even have done so lord that we can gather here tonight that we can hear from you, that we, we can be assured that these words are your words. We know that you love us, and we know that you never fail, and what a comfort that is, Lord. Help us to see deeply through your words tonight. Help us to, through the power of your Spirit, through the spiritual ears that only you can give, take the imagery of this rich and wonderful word and, and make it real and embed it in our hearts that we might use it in our lives, that it might be a profitable thing that we were together tonight around your word as your children wanting to hear from our Father. So thank you for all that you'll do in advance. We give glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 91. Now, let me tell you that I know a lot of you, you know, because we I put the scripture on the uh, handout, and it is on the handout tonight, but I think it would be helpful for you if you grab that hardback Bible and open to 684, because there's going to be moments where I'm going to be referring to something, and it could, you know, it just be easier if you had Psalm 91 in front of you, I think. So that'd be a little bit helpful if you don't have your Bible. So when it comes to... Uh, you know, like an opportunity like tonight. Here we are on a Wednesday night Bible study in the summertime. And uh, 
the question is we're oftentimes asking the wrong question. See, the question is not do you believe in God? That's just not the, the right question. That, the answer to that question doesn't really tell me much of anything. It really doesn't. If somebody tells me they believe in God, it's, it's of zero consequence to me. It's immediately going to be a follow-up question. Here's, here's a, a much more impactful question. What do you believe about the God that you believe in? Now that is a good question. Because if somebody believes in God, well, what does that mean? Who knows? I mean, there's so many crazy, goofy, ridiculous, unbiblical ideas about God out there. And so what we want to know is, well, what do we believe about the God that we believe in? Now, if let's talk about Satan for a moment. If we were to, if we were to take the entire Bible and we were to uh, pull out all of the references to Satan in Scripture, and then we were to shrink that down into all of the all of the times that Satan spoke or well, let's just say spoke then we took all of those instances and we we could we could group them together into a message it's not really a I don't want to call it a sermon I call it a message but he, he has a life message, and it has three points, just like any good message I was taught in seminary does, which obviously I did not listen to. So, But they teach you to just preach a message with three points. Well, Satan's got three points, and it's the same three points. And he's, he just keeps drilling these three points down at every possible way he can. And here's what I think the three points are. Point number one is... You're not getting all that you deserve. Oh, he was preaching that point in the garden. He still, that's still one of his favorites. He's still working it as hard as he can in as many people's lives as he possibly can. If he can get you discontent, if he can get you feeling like you're missing out on something. Point number two is there's no need for a cross. Now, he does this in a lot of creative ways. He wants to reduce the need for the cross. So how does he reduce the need for the cross? By elevating our view of ourselves. You see? By convincing us that we're not that bad. By constantly filling our mind with thoughts of people that are worse than us. And by the more he can get you to... Uh, the more Satan can get you, every time Satan gets you to look down on somebody else, he's reducing the need for the cross in your life. That's what he's doing. And number three, if you follow God, well, nothing bad should happen to you. That's his third point. And it's really just these three points. Now, you're thinking to yourself, now, aren't you missing something here? Like, shouldn't one of these points be 
Jesus isn't really God, or don't believe what Jesus says, or, but read your Bible. That's not what he does. He, he's more crafty than that. See, if he can get you to buy into any one of these three things, he's going to get the same result. And it's far easier to convince you of this than it is to convince you of that. This is how he operates. This is what we find in Scripture. And so we're going to look at this psalm that really just uh, captivated my attention some years ago. Uh, I'm not even sure what it was. Uh, I think I was reading in the New Testament that led me to Psalm 91, and then it just, it's just been something I can't shake. Now, I think I'm missing a blank, so this one you're going to have to listen to. Isn't the next thing on your handout says the sad reality? Is that what it says? Yeah, I don't have that slide, so you're going to have to listen. So the sad reality is that it's not an uphill climb for Satan to get us, get these three things to take root in our lives. Why? It's very, that's why he's not trying to get you to believe, don't believe Jesus or Jesus isn't God or something like that. Why? These are way easier. And the reason is because the natural desires of our twisted flesh, they're the natural desires of our twisted flesh. We naturally want these three things to be true. We, we have a natural tendency to believe these three things. And so it's way easier to just focus on these. See, our flesh is, when, is always screaming out in us things like, you know, oh, I'm serving you faithfully, so why is this happening to me? All of us in here, there's, I mean, think about it. There's not a lot of things that I could say with 100% confidence that every single one of us in the room has said multiple times across the span of our, multiple times. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know what we've said? Everybody in this room multiple times has said to God, it's not fair. Where does that come from? Your flesh. You were born to believe that. You, your flesh loves that. And so Satan just has a, a field day with it. So the, the, the questions are, well, if this is true, then how do we deal with the struggles and pain that come in this life? How, how, do, we, how do we do that? How do we, how do we live in a dangerous world that's fraught with trouble and find peace? How does this work out? And that's where Psalm 91 comes into the picture. So the first thing we're going to see is the promise. The promise. The promise is in the opening four verses. It's interesting because this is a famous psalm, yet I don't think, you know, 15% of the people who ever quote it have any idea what it's about. But people love it, and you'll see why in a minute. So here's the promise. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and rampart. The promise. 
the shadow. So here's the big idea in the opening lines. This is why this is a, a famous psalm, because it's, it's speaking to what we want, what we naturally desire. So here's the big idea. God will protect you. That's the big idea. I mean, clearly that's what God's getting at here. He's, he's describing himself as a shelter and as a shadow and as a fortress. And so we all know that we live in a world that is dangerous. And the psalmist lived in a world that was dangerous. It wasn't necessarily more dangerous. It was just a different danger. You know, there were just things about it that made it dangerous, just like there's things about our world today that make it dangerous. But it's always been dangerous, and it's very dangerous. And if you live long enough, you're going to suffer, and that's just the way it is. And so what we need is a shelter. We need a shadow. We need a fortress. Those sound wonderful. I mean, nobody's going to turn that down. But if you think about these things, these are all things that you lean into. A shelter, a shadow, a fortress. They're, they're things that you rely on in a time of need, right? And so notice that all of these things require something. They require neediness. You see, no one runs to a shelter unless they need a shelter. You know, no, one, no one seeks the, the, the comfort of the shade or the shadow unless you're in need of it. You don't need a fortress when everything's fine and good. and No. So it requires neediness, which is important. Because unfortunately, it often takes trials and tribulations to bring us, to bring awareness to our ever-present neediness. You see, the trials and the tribulations don't make us more needy. You're going to have to think about it for a second. They don't make you more needy. They just bring awareness to the need. You see, when, when, when something bad happens to us, the world didn't get more dangerous. The danger just got closer to you. You see, the world was always dangerous. And so it, it's awareness is the issue here. Now, I want, you to, I want you to make note in those first verses, like circle, circle all the you. In other words, like in uh, verse 3, surely he shall deliver you, circle you. Then in verse 4, he shall cover you under his wings. You shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield. Or if you got your Bible open, you, in those first four verses, you circle those you, 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 you. And then make a notation, those are singular. That's not y'all. That's you. So it's, it's important for you to understand that this is, the psalmist is using the singular you. It's very personal. So, so it's like the psalmist is talking to you as you're reading this, you personally. And notice the, the, this, these metaphors jump out. Like when you... 
When you read the Bible, you see, you know, we're always talking about how God reveals himself in different ways, in different texts. You see God revealed as king or God revealed as, you know, our shepherd or as our father or all sorts of different ways. And then there's this very interesting metaphor, this mother bird protecting her young, that, that he'll protect you under, the, under his wings. And so it, that metaphor, it, confe- it conveys, uh, the, the pic- it's a picture of, of strength, but it's also a picture of compassion and, and tenderness and love, right? But also, if you think about it, you realize it's also a picture of substitution. Because think about what the imagery is, is driving at. So a bird who would gather her chicks under its wings and cover them under there, is not just stronger than them, and it's not just exhibiting her love for them, but she's also being a substitution for them, right? Because if, if it's raining and she covers the chicks, who gets wet? She gets wet. If it's cold, who shivers? She does. If a predator comes and she covers, who gets eaten? She does. She substitutes for what she's protecting, which is very fascinating. And so it leads us to, the, to ask the question, well, now, how is God going to do that? Because if the big idea is, is that God's going to protect us, hey, we want to know about that. So remember, we're not asking, do you believe in God? We're saying, but what do you believe? So this is where it gets important, because the million-dollar question is, you could say all day, well, I believe God's going to protect me. Okay. Again, not very helpful information. How is God going to protect you? That is important information. That's something you need to know. That's something that's super critical to our understanding. How is he going to do this? All right, so the promise is followed up by the protection, the protection, the actual protection that's going to occur. So in this, the main part of the psalm, all these middle verses, you have this protection described. So like, for example, beginning in verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. So you notice in 5 and 6, what you have is a a complete picture of 24-hour period. You You have all the It's showing you all the areas of the day are covered. Then in verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it shall not come near you. Not what they're going to fall of, just the fact that they're falling. It's going to be protection for you. Verse 8, only your eyes, only with your eyes shall you look and you see the reward of the wicked because you have made the Lord who is my refuge even the most high, your dwelling place. Look at how all-encompassing this is. Verse 10, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you. So now we even have supernatural protection. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Wow. Not some of your ways, but in all your ways. Look at verse 12. And in their hands they shall bear you up, these angels. But look, even in the little things, lest you 
dash your foot against the stone. Even, so even the big things all the way to stumping your toe. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the big things, the big dangerous things that are out there. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Wow. Boy. Man, there's some charismatic people that's done went crazy off of these words, huh? But it's in the Bible. There it is. We got this promise that God's going to protect us. And then we have this very elaborate and detailed listing of this protection. And now, if you could see from my vantage point right now, the room is filled with concerned looks. You're all concerned. Because all of you are in an entanglement right now, aren't you? you? Yeah, because of what you just read. Because you're like, what is he about to say? Because some of these things just don't belong. This isn't adding up. It appears, it appears to say, if you trust God, he will protect you from danger. I mean, pretty much all danger. Which means that if you aren't protected, so if something does get you, if something does happen to you, well then... You have a trust problem. Welcome to the charismatic church. You just got indoctrinated right in there. Whatever goes wrong, it's a faith problem. You don't have enough faith. That's your problem. Millions of people trapped in this spiral of doom, self-defeat, condemnation. Not trapped, you can't, you rarely can you stay trapped in it for long because you just finally perish and walk away. You give up. And that's the people that you meet and you share the gospel with them and they say to you, I tried God and it didn't work. They didn't try the God I believe in. They listened to somebody who didn't know what the Bible says and got tangled up in the wrong thing. No, but the Bible says right there, I mean, we're, we're trampling on lions and cobras. Like, I'm not even going to stomp my toe. Like, if you trust in God, no, no. Uh, it's, it's even interesting that the, the wording there, like in verse 3 where it says perilous pestilence. You know what, you know what pestilence is? If you literally look the word up in a Bible dictionary, that Hebrew word, it means literally viral epidemic disease. So what what does that mean? You got to all the look at the trust problems in here. Y'all are got issues, man. Y'all need to get saved again, baptized again, and it won't be the last time. It says it right there. 
might get some snakes out and start trampling on them. It says it right there. Oh, you're scared of them? What's your problem? I know they're poisonous, so you don't have faith. It says it right there. It's in the Bible. You just read it. I even got you to open up a Bible so you know that I didn't just print some words and say this was Psalm 91. So what is this saying? Because here's the thing. You don't have to live very long before you figure out, hmm, that's not true. That's not true. Now, I mean, I don't know what is. I may not know what is, but I know something's wrong. Something's wrong. It just doesn't add up. And this is the thing you got to realize is that the Bible never says what we want it to say. It says what God wants it to say. But we read things according to what we want them to say. I mean, you know, you've heard the phrase, you hear what you want to hear. Yeah. Well, we do that with the Bible all the time. And then life comes along and teaches us, see, we want these things to be true. We want, we want to. Wouldn't that be great? We just trust God and, and, and danger. All evil, it can't even get near me. Wow. Man. Awesome. And some of you probably believe some weird things like that and probably pray some goofy stuff like that sometimes. And you think you're being spiritual when you do. Because your flesh wants that to be true and you're just confused. Now, there's, there's one place in the Bible where... Satan has this unique opportunity given to him that he, he only gets one time. He only gets one shot at quoting Scripture. There's only one time that he spoke Scripture from his mouth. One time. And he could have chosen any Scripture he wanted. But he chose Psalm 91. And that's what got me really interested in this psalm. See, in Matthew chapter 4, those verses that I put on your handout, that's the second temptation. See, then the devil took him up. Jesus is out in the wilderness. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you won't even dash your foot against a stone. What in the world? And see, we've heard that so many times, we just read it and don't even think anything of it. But you should think something of it. First thing you should think of it is you should remember. Now, hold on a second. That didn't just happen. 
What was the first temptation? See, the first temptation is the Bible says that the Spirit led Jesus out in the wilderness. And how long was Jesus out in the wilderness? For 40 days. And the Bible says for 40 days he didn't do what? He didn't eat any food. And so he was hungry. And the first temptation, Jesus is out in the wilderness and the devil says to him, he says, you should turn those stones into bread. And what was Jesus' response? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Isn't that what it is? And so Satan listened to what Jesus said and said, okay, temptation number two, he puts him up there and he, Jesus said, I live by the words of God. So what did Satan do? Gave him the word of God. He said, all right. Why don't you throw yourself off this high place? And then he quoted verbatim. Psalm 91. Now there's something there. That didn't just happen on accident. Satan could have chosen any passage in the whole entire Bible. He had every, he knows them all. He had it all at his disposal. Any passage, anyone, he could have used it. He didn't have to take Jesus on a high place and quote Psalm 91. He could have done anything because Jesus gave him a blank slate. He said, I live by every word. So just pick any of them you want. Any. Why did he choose Psalm 91? Why would he have said that? Why in the world would he have said, throw yourself off of here because didn't God say that he will give his angels charge over you and they'll take care of you and protect you and you won't even stump your toes, so hurl yourself off a cliff. That's what you chose? If there's one thing that the devil wants you to misunderstand, if there's one opportunity to twist the forces of darkness are going to use that verse hmm there must be something super powerful in that verse right now i'm just thinking Got to be. There's got to be a reason. What happens to people if you, if you believe what Satan just said? If you used God's word and twisted it to believe that nothing bad's going to happen to you. 
What's the outcome of that belief? See, inevitably, you're going to suffer, aren't you? Bad things are going to happen, aren't they? Struggles are going to come, aren't they? And then what? And then you're going to get discouraged, and you're going to get defeated, and you're going to get bitter towards him. And the older you get, the longer you live, the more you experience hardship, the tougher things get, whatever it is, the more you're going to willfully, willfully move away from God, back away from God, diminish your desire to be around God. Because God's not trustworthy. Because God's not, he says things that aren't true. He, he can't be trusted. And when Satan quotes Psalm 91, then what is Jesus' response in verse 7? It is written again, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Why didn't Jesus say, you shall not twist his words? Wouldn't that be fit the context of what happened here? But instead, Jesus jumps over the seemingly glaring thing and goes to the situation of Satan trying to get him to hurl himself off the cliff. Like, don't tempt, you shouldn't tempt me to jump off the cliff. Didn't we miss the big point here? Like, what is the big takeaway? That we shouldn't tempt God or that we shouldn't twist his word? Hmm. So what is Jesus saying? When Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, Jesus is teaching, man, this is teaching us some powerful, life-changing truths right here. He's teaching us, first of all, that you can't, you cannot obey God to manipulate him. You can't do that. Now, you got to think about this for a minute. This is a big problem. You, you have this idea of who God is, and so and, and if your idea of who God is is just two degrees off of what the Bible says that God, that God actually is, then think about what happens. Every time you obey God, what are you obeying? Who are you obeying? You see, you're doing all these things because you're doing them in obedience to God. But who are you obeying? If it's just two degrees off, if it's just slightly turned, then who is it? It's not him. It's not him. Because you're doing it in response to a different version of him. And the reason you're doing it is because you have an idea of what this obedience is going to do. Because remember, God never does anything for nothing, and neither do you and neither do I. Everything you do, you do for a reason. 
So every time you've ever obeyed God, you did it for a reason. So when you obeyed God, what were you obeying God for? What God were you obeying? What were you, why did you do that? That's what Jesus is saying. See, he's saying you can't obey God and create a debt. You see, what what Satan is doing is Satan saying, God said this, so therefore you can do this because it assures you that if you do this, he'll do this. See, what Satan was saying is if you hurl yourself off the cliff, it creates an indebtedness to God. God has said that, so he's indebted to catch you. He's indebted to protect you. You cannot obey God that way. You, God is never indebted to you, ever, under any circumstances. You can't do something and create a debt on God's part. Man, I'm telling you, some of you are going to get set free tonight from some junk. If you think, you got to think now. See, us... Us demanding God follow us is not us following God. That's not following God. That's a whole different thing. So if, if my following God requires anything of God, I'm following myself. Who? Man, that would blow up most churches in America today right there. They would cease to exist. They don't even have a compartment to put that in. Most of the things I read, most of the things I hear, most of the things I see, they don't even have a compartment for that. Some of you might not have a compartment for it. Because you could exist here. And swim in the wrong pond. I mean, we should be honest about it. If you're following God, if you're obeying God, requires anything of Him, anything of Him at all, you're following yourself. You you cannot put God in an indebted situation to you. Ever. And here's the thing. All of us in here have said a gazillion times, God, that's not fair. But what we just said is not even possible. We lied right there. We've all said it, and it's not even possible. You can't say that. What do you mean? Because you, in order to say that, you have to have some warped idea that you know what fair is. See, you, you can't accuse God of something unless you've determined that whatever it is, there's a, different, there's a, a better way. There's a different way. And in order to do that, you've got to supplant God. And so basically, you're just obeying yourself. So, oh, it gets worse. 
The only acceptable motivation for obedience to God is faith. Period. That's it. It's the only acceptable motivation. Any other motivation is a false motivation and is going to be predicated on some false belief. See, if you say, I'm obeying God because if I don't obey God, I'm afraid of the consequences. Come on. You know you've done this. I'm afraid of the consequences. But what are you really saying? What you're really saying is, is that so if I obey God, those consequences won't get me which just made God indebted to your obedience. And does it work like that? If you do A, God has to do B, or if you do A, God won't let B happen? Huh? I mean, is it what? That's not true. But we do it. Because why? Our flesh is naturally twisted to want to believe that. That's why we think when something bad happens in somebody's life or their marriages fall apart, or especially, Lord, help us all, we're going to get slaughtered when we stand before God. Every time somebody's kid goes sideways, every time, we think, hmm, wonder what's wrong with mom and dad. Because our twisted flesh believes that the only reason a child goes sideways is because mom and dad are jacked up. That's what we believe. What We're warped. You think that's true? You think good people don't have bad kids? And Lord, you don't think bad people have good kids? You're out of your mind. I did youth ministry for 10 years. I've said this a thousand times. Most of the best kids that came out of my youth ministry had the worst homes. Don't ask me about all the religious parents. They're the kids I wanted to strangle all the time. Oh, yeah. But the first thing we think is, hmm, something must be going on at home. Warped. See, you think about Satan's ploy. You're not getting what you deserve. Hmm. So what you're saying is, I know what makes me safe. I know what's good for me. I know what will make me safe. So therefore, I believe that whatever this is, is not good enough because I know of something better. See, like every time you say, well, this is going wrong in my life and I wish my life was like that person, even that, even in saying that right there, you're assuming, you're, you're assuming upon your own knowledge that you even know diddly squat about what's actually going on in that person's life. All you see is the outside of the, the cover of the book. You don't know nothing. You see what I mean? We speak out of turn a thousand times a day. How do you know? You don't know. 
You just think. We just think this and we think that and we th- because it makes sense to us. And what happens is we, we're just whittling. Every time we think this, thing, we're whittling on a piece of wood and we're just making it. And what you don't realize is you're just whittling up a little idol. Fashioning that suck, carving it right up with all your thinking. It's true. What about, well, there's no need for a cross. Well, you know, because I, every, I believe that every time I've ever said somebody else is worse than me. Every time. Every time. Every time you've ever turned the TV on and some guy goes into school and shoots 19 kids and you go, how could somebody do that? You just said there's no need for the cross right there. Because you don't think you could, you don't think you could go into school and shoot 19 people. See, some of you right now are going, hmm, that's your problem. You don't think you could go into school and shoot 19 people. You're wrong. You are wrong. That's not true. There's no limit to your depravity. You think the person that went in there and shot 19 people is less human than you? They're not less human than you. They're the same human as me and you. That's the problem. When we see that somebody goes in a school and shoots 19 children, we ought to be heartbroken because of sin. And we ought to think, dear God, if you don't intervene soon, what, what if you remove your, remove your restraining hand? Every single one of us will be shooting 19 people. Apart from salvation, there's no limit to what I could do. Every time we look at someone else and go, hmm, we think what we're saying is, well, we really don't need, they need the cross more than me. Jesus had to die more for them than he had to die for me. That is blasphemy. That's what that is. Blasphemy. So if we believe if you follow God, nothing bad should happen to you. You know, you know what that whole thing is? Man, Satan's got you. He's got you. He got one shot to roll the dice, and that's the dice he rolled. If he could snag a hook in your mouth, one hook, if he gets one shot to get you, he could pick anything. You know what he chooses? That. He wants you to believe that God owes you. Above everything else, all he's got to do is get you to believe God owes you something. That's all he's got to do. And he's got you. So there's the promise of protection. And then the last one, the possession. How do we possess? Because there is a promise in the first four verses. There is this long list of protection. This seems to be all-encompassing. It's in the Bible right there. You can read it as many times as you want. Be a good psalm to memorize. So how do we possess it? What's missing from this equation? Now, I want you to make a note, okay? I'm, this isn't in your hand. I want you to make a note. You go back and look at this sometime later on. Make a note on your handout. Verses 1 and 2. Use the, use I. I, speaking in the 
First person. The psalmist is speaking of himself in the first two verses. Then in 3 through 13, it switches to you. So the psalmist speaks of himself in the first two. And then from 3 to 13, the psalmist is speaking to me and you. But then in 14 through 16, it changes again. And God starts speaking to us for the first time. So now we're going to get clarity. So it goes from the psalmist saying, here's, here's what I I, 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 then it's you, 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 and then God starts to speak in verse 14. Notice what it says. Because he has set his love upon me. That's why he is not capitalized. Because he's talking about us. Has set his love on capital me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Oh. So here's the the point. If we let the Bible direct our path, which is what all of us should do, we're going to arrive at a very different end point. You're never going to end at where your flesh wants to end. But you're going to end it where you belong. You're going to end at the truth. You're going to end at the. You're going to end it at the right place. You're going to end it at proper understanding. See, it is a lamp unto our feet. The problem is we keep veering off because we want these things to be true, and we've heard so many people say them, and we've read so many foolish books, and we've listened to so many foolish people, and it sounds so good to our foolish hearts, and we just slowly get indoctrinated into all these foolish things, and pretty soon, we've tilted two degrees over, and we're obeying ourselves. I'll prove it to you. Look at Luke. Look at these verses in Luke 21. Jesus said, Jesus said in Luke 21, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death, he said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head shall be lost. Wait, 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 wait. What now? Uh Uh-uh. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is when the Bible directs our path. When you're reading the Bible and you read something and it makes no sense to your flesh, you should stop, freeze in your tracks and go, God's trying to show me something right here. I need to build a campfire. I need to hang out on this moment because this ain't computing. Don't start thinking, oh, well, maybe the translators translated it wrong. Oh, well, maybe that's, uh, let me look it up and well, let, me, let me see what some liberal fruitcake has to say about it. No, no, just focus on what it says. You're going to be put to death, but not a hair on your head. Not one hair on your head will be lost. Clearly, we got something mixed up. And in verse 19, he says, but... By your patience, you will possess your souls. Ooh, there's a 
There's a diamond in there, boy. So if he says, by your patience, I, ain't, I don't, I mean, look, I don't have, I could spend all night on this. But if he says, by your patience, you'll possess your souls. Clearly, whatever you trust most in this life, it owns you. It owns you. See, Jesus is, is, you don't have to be like super smart to figure out. Jesus is making a statement about possession. Like you can, anybody can figure that out. You can have a third grade education, you can figure that out. He's making a statement about possession of something. So you can start grabbing onto something and start wringing it out, you know? Like I'm praying sometimes and I just clench my fist up like this, like I'm wringing it. I'm like, God, I'm wringing it. I need, I need all the drops out of this I can get. What do you mean? What, what are you saying right here? What's happening? You can possess your souls. See, now, all these, he doesn't say, well, maybe something bad might happen. He says, look, all of you, man, it's going to be bad. You're going to be betrayed by your family. You're going to be hated by everybody. Some of you are going to die. But by the way, not a hair on your head. It's going to be lost. See, he must mean something way different than what we mean. And now I don't want to mean what I mean. I want to mean what Jesus means. I want to end up where I'm supposed to be. I don't want to be two degrees off. I want to be dead center. So I got to figure that out. Because that's not what I understand. That's not how I, my mind unnaturally works. What are we possessing? See, people who trust God in trouble... Not who trust God, who trust God in trouble. Now think about this. If you trust God in trouble, hmm, at least for sure, you're taking a step in the right direction, aren't you? Because you're not saying, oh, there's trouble, God let me down, I'm going this way. Now, you still aren't maybe not all the way on the right track, because, but at least you're taking a step in the right direction. You're not there yet, but you're taking the right first step, which is a great move. Because if you take the wrong first step, all the other steps don't matter. You're going the wrong place, right? Does that make sense? So the first right step is trust God. That's always the first right step in any situation but especially in trouble. But if you take the first right step to trust God when you're in trouble, well then, who are those people? Well, they're the people who can handle trouble. Because you can't handle trouble if you don't trust God in trouble. And there's a whole bunch of people running around that can't handle trouble. And as soon as things go bad, they fall apart. Right? I know you see it. It gets hard. Life gets hard. Relationships get hard. Finances get hard. Health situations get hard. And they start 
fading away. They start going off into the distance. They can't handle trouble. If you can't handle trouble, you got a major problem. Remember where we started? The, the reason this bothered you in the beginning is because everybody in here just automatically knows, oh, yeah, this is a world full, full of trouble. Right? I mean, we got kids over there in that building. I'm not talking about over there in that building. I'm talking about in that building who already know this is a scary world filled with trouble. They've already been touched by it. Already. Now, there's kids that have been touched by it in there, but they don't know it yet. But there's kids in there that they know. So if you can't handle trouble, you got a major problem. I mean, the way I see it is that's like saying, well, I don't know how to breathe in oxygen. Well, basically... You gone. You can't live in this world if you don't know how to breathe. Well, you can't live in this world if you don't know how to be in trouble. I mean, you can't live well. You can't live for God. You can't follow him because it's, he just said, well, your parent, your family's going to leave. Everyone's going to hate you. Some of you are going to die. But you can possess your soul. Hmm. Not a hair on your head. See, this is why this is so important. Well, clearly, God's not promising to protect us from all trouble, right? We know that. That, that can't be right. It can't be right. So what does it mean? If God's not promising to protect us from all trouble and we live in a world filled with trouble, then it's inevitable that we're going to go through trouble. I mean, I'm just thinking logically, right? Okay. So if trouble is inevitable, which it is, I mean, you're, you're, you're certifiably insane if you disagree with that. Certifiably. Not in reality. So if it's inevitable, which it is, then what is, what's God saying in those last three verses? See, notice, look, he says, verse 15, he says, We will call upon him, so he shall call upon me, and I will answer him, and I will be with him. What does it say? What does it say? It says, in trouble. Is that what it says? It doesn't say from trouble. It says in trouble. So all those verses that all those wacky people got totally wrong and run around and act like maniacs wasn't talking about keeping you from trouble. It was talking about being with you. Oh, that's what the Bible says. Now, see, my flesh doesn't like that. So I got to let, let the Bible determine the path I'm on so I get to the right end. So God says, I'll be with you in trouble. 
All right. So I'm going to be in the trouble, but I will deliver him and honor him. Oh, okay. So now we're starting to unravel the truth here. So if trouble's inevitable, the main point of Psalm 91 is not that I will be It's not I'll be with you in trouble. Really, that's not the point. It's that I'm going to be with you through trouble. See, because notice, he didn't say, I'm going to be with you in trouble, period. He said, I'm going to be with you in trouble, semicolon. Which means, I'm going to be with you in trouble, but that's not the end of the story. It's not just that I'm going to be with you. See, that's stopping too soon. You ain't got to, you still got a ring on this thing a minute. I'm going to be with you through your trouble, through your trouble, because he says, I'm going to deliver you. So me and you are going to walk in the trouble together, but I'm going to deliver you from what we're walking through. Now, you got to think about how all this is going to pull together, right? Now, now, let's remember where we started this conversation. Remember in the beginning, he said, he said God said he's going to be like a mother bird, and he's going to put us under his wings. Remember that? And I said, yeah, that, that's a metaphor for strength and for kindness and love and for substitution. Hmm. Matthew chapter 23, Palm Sunday, Jesus Riding into Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Oh, why did he say that? Why did he say that? That just seemed like a strange place to say that. Because what God is teaching us in the Bible is that he doesn't protect us by prevention. He protects us through substitution. And you know what? We think that's a disappointment. Our flesh thinks, you know, that's better than nothing, but prevention would be the bomb. Oh, how wrong we are. You see, when, when all these people tilt their theology two degrees off and end up a million miles from where they're supposed to be, they think they're tilting in a better direction and what they're actually doing is tilting away from the greatest possible thing that could ever be. But your flesh will never tell you that. It'll never tell you. See, Jesus is the only person who ever perfectly trusted in God. He perfectly trusted God. And yet... Look at what happened to him. He was betrayed. And, and he was 
beaten and he was wounded and he felt pain and he even violence and physical death. And how did he do that? Or why did he do that? He did that. Did he do that to protect us? Did he use protection? No. He used substitution. He put us under his wings. And he covered us and he took it all on himself. While we were shielded under those wings. That's what he did. That's why when he's going to the cross, he said, like a hen, we cover these chicks. See, See, he delivered us through substitution. But was he kept safe? Was he spared any, 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 anything? No, no. So, the culmination of this psalm is that we're going to receive salvation. And how do we receive salvation? Through substitution, right? So through what happened to him came the greatest gift that could ever be imagined. Sinners could be reconciled to God. Sins could be forgiven forever. And an eternity with God could now marvelously and unbelievably become a reality for anyone, for anyone who would just believe what the Bible says. So, The safest person on earth is the one who fully trusts in God. That's the safest person on earth. That's not what your flesh believes. You know know who was the most... in command person who who ever walked the face of this earth was Jesus. And do you know when the command that he had over everything that was happening to him and through him was most evident was as he was dying. He was in complete and utter control. Complete control. So he was, he was absolutely, in a way we can't understand, there was never a moment of Jesus' life where he was ever in any danger at all. Ever. He was never in any danger, ever. He was never not safe. You understand that? See, you have to rethink some things right now. 
He was completely safe all the time because he's God. So who's the person in this room who trusts God the most? Like right now, tonight, who is it? Who in this room trusts God the most? Which one of you has the greatest trust in God in this room right now? I don't know, but I know how to find out. I know there's one component that has to be present. So if we were going to sniff it out, we'd start with a very simple conversation and we'd start whittling it down. It wouldn't be any of the ways that's probably going through your mind. We wouldn't be looking at the outside of the book. Mm -mm. It's the person in the room who's most aware of their need for him. It's probably the person in the room who, who A, has suffered the most. Or B, is right now suffering the most. And you know who trusts him the least? Come on. The people who've had the easiest ride in the room. So what do we want? What do we want? What's your goal? Hmm? Could it be that so many things that we do in our life actually the, th the way we pray, the way we think, the way we act is the reason for our immaturity? And you go, well, why don't I grow? What do you want? Because you listen to your flesh. And every time it gets hard, we start sprinting. So therefore, it's what you get. See, he'll protect you from everything through, through, through. That's why we're afraid because we don't believe the Bible. Jesus said, why are you afraid of somebody who can only kill the body? He said, not a hair on your head be lost. You know, I really started meditating on that, and I said, you know what that means? 
ain't no bald people in heaven. He got them. They're all there. Every one of them. Just like he promised. Well, I mean, it'll change the way we look at funerals, trials, tragedies, difficulties. Yeah, he doesn't, it's not prevention, it's substitution. So I can take anything because he already took it from me.